Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we talk about the cancellation of the summer concert season, learn about how COVID-19 is forcing unions to accelerate, and discuss prisons as infections soar. All this plus the Trump Diaries, a brand new size matters, and AWCY-FM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for April 24th, 2020. This episode is dedicated to Shanna Van Volt. Mario Smith chatted with Eric Williams of The Silver Room. Williams discussed the cancellation of this year's block party due to coronavirus and how the pandemic is affecting music venues and social events citywide. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. The entrepreneur of all entrepreneurs, the owner of The Silver Room, and, and uh, a much nicer guy than he is the owner of the store, Mr. Eric Williams. What's up, E? What's up, Mario? How you feeling, man? Man, look, living a dream, stuck in a house for 30 more days. What, you, what, what can I do? Nothing. You're doing it. You're doing it right now. I'm doing now. it. I'm doing it. Uh, um, there's a lot <clears throat> to talk about, a lot that I want to ask, but I want to start first. I don't. I think this would be like your second public opportunity to talk about the cancellation of Block Party. Um, for folks who don't know, the Silver Room Block Party is an annual event held every year, uh, or almost, <laughs> not every year, uh, <laughs> but held annually. Um, to celebrate the culture and to celebrate life and celebrate good weather, although it does, all those things don't always come at the same time. Um, and it's music and kids and families, and it's a really great event. And this year, because of coronavirus, you made the decision ahead of everybody to cancel um, this year. Uh, what, what was the impetus behind your decision? And do you think you... Was there a reason you made it so much earlier than the other than the city made their decision about Gospel Fest and all that stuff? Sure, sure. Um, so as you know, Mario, you've been uh, and, you know the big part of the block party since year two or three, man. So I'm always talking to you about the issues we had the year before, you know, the highs and the lows, you know. <clears throat> and right. for people who don't plan big events, sometimes people don't understand this doesn't happen like in a month or two or three. We start thinking about this, you know, a few days after the last one. So actively planning this since last October, thinking about two major issues that I felt I had to um, I had to kind of pay some attention to. Uh, One was the space. It was so many people, you know, last year. It was uncomfortable for me personally. Uh, You couldn't really walk. And that causes some issues. And two was the financial part of this. As you know, this is something that started off really, really small. I used to come out of pocket a couple thousand dollars. I could justify that as we've grown exponentially, especially since we moved to Hyde Park. It's very, very, very expensive event. And the way that I was, I thought it could make sense was this donation-based thing at some point just was not working. And last year, very clear that that wasn't working. So right. in October, I started thinking about those two major issues, a space issue and an economic issue, and how we could address those, because they actually work hand in hand in, in many ways. So trying to think about uh, options for ticketing, options for maybe finding a new location, options for trying to ramp up you know, donations. Mm-hmm. So the last six months for me. Um, I think I come, I had an answer, I, I think. I come to you know, a, 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 a solution. Uh, probably late January, February, to move in a different direction. Uh, and I was working on that, and then here comes Coroni, you know, and <laughs> everything. And so to answer your question, I mean, a lot of the other events, they have their they have their acts already in place, you know, back in the fall, deposits paid, 
They have you know, their funding already kind of done, that their ticketing starts really early. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of the festival events that have not, still not canceled, the stick of like Lollapalooza or Pitchfork, I understand why, because they don't really have to right now. You know, right. for us, we were still working, even more so now in the spring, booking artists, because the nature of this event is more community-based. We don't just book one artist and, and, and leave it there. We're booking, you know, 100 artists, you know? Right. So there's a lot of work that's gonna have to be done between March and July, listening to demo tapes and going mm-hmm. through camps, trying to raise money, calling the city, blah, blah. And one day I'm like, okay, I have my daughter here with me right now. She's not in school. Uh, the city is closed, basically. You can't do any business. How do I ask for sponsorship from companies who just lost half their market share or, or more? Right, right. How do I ask vendors for money that does go into helping pay for this for you know the four or 500 bucks for these vendors? Uh, when they're not working right now. And then, you know, as you know, we do all of this work, running around, blah, blah, and come June 1st, you know, Prisker or the CDC says, oh, no, there's no events. It's too much uncertainty. And I didn't want to take the risk of doing all this work and get to a point where May, June, oh, there's no events. So I just made, and then, you know know what it was, Mario, really? When I saw that they canceled the Olympics in Tokyo, I'm like, eh, Nah, man. Like, I think that was actually the thing that really kind of told me, like, you mm-hmm. know what? It's, it's, it's best for me just to not go put myself through this. And I use that term because it's a lot to go through financially, yeah. emotionally, my time, and then my store is closed on top of that. It's just, I'm like, you know what? Let me just take a pause. Let's have a year and a half to really, you know, figure things out, how this can make sense. We'll, we'll know things will be safe, hopefully, by 2021. Hopefully. <laughs> And have the event, you know. I was even thinking, like, what if okay, you can have events, but you can't have events over a thousand people, you know? I mean, we, we have no idea what these guidelines are going to be, and so to plan for something that you don't know, that expected to me at this point doesn't make sense because I hadn't gone so far into all the deposits, into taking in money, you know, yeah. they don't worry about refunds and all this kind of stuff. Let me just stop now and just focus. So. Here's another aspect of that, too, that I wanted to ask you about. So with with canceling block party, taking all the emotion of that out of it and looking now, as you've seen, uh, the city has canceled the Gospel Fest, the house music downtown event, uh, Blues Fest, the biggest blues festival in the world. Um, and, And there's a pretty solid chance that the July events will either be canceled or delayed a bit. Um. You're comfortable with the decision you made? Uh, 100%, man, 100%. You know, uh, again, from a from a personal standpoint, the work that goes into this, it's a lot. And yes, I, God, I know that. You know, we go through all of this, and here comes the CDC and says, you know, there's no events. Or the other side of it is, let's say that we did do it and people started to get sick. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's too much uncertainty right now. So I feel very comfortable. And, you know, I understand why the city is canceling these events. I, I get it. They don't want to be liable, first of all, to be honest with you. And mm-hmm. you can't even really work right now. The city's closed. So all the stuff that you do before an event, you can't really do it right now. So Did, did, did they consult you at all for anything? Or, or was the dialogue between you and the city was like, well, we're not sure, on the city's part, we're not sure if we're going to be canceling stuff. But you're like, you know, I'm leaning more toward canceling no matter what you guys say you're going to do. 
Well, um, I, I had a conversation with a local politician about about it. This is even before Pritzker. Well, this is actually weeks before. This is actually before the lockdown, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I said, mm, this, is, this is looking a little, I, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable about this. I think I'm going to cancel. And they said, don't cancel until you know for sure that you can't do it. The problem with that is I still got to do work. So I'm working, yeah. working, and all of a sudden, June 6th, oh, no events. You know, yeah. or May 13th, no events. So I'm like, I'm not going to, so it's not like you just put the event together and just stop. I still have yeah. to work with the event. And so I, so for me to save myself the worry, I decided to say, I'm going to stop this. And it seemed to be it was a, it was a good decision before everyone else did because looks like nothing's going to be happening. Yeah. Um, as a business owner, uh, small business owner, um, you, along with my man Corey Gilkey and a bunch of the other folks that I know that are small business owners who are doing great work in Chicago and around the country, were promised some help from the federal government. Did the federal government come through with the help for you? Uh, great question. So the first round of money that came through, I was put in an application. I think it was day three or four, whatever it was. I was told that they had ran out of money already. <laughs> wow. So... Uh, luckily, I know somebody in banking who actually hit me up yesterday and said, man, get an application in. You know, I'm here for you, blah, blah. I'm, I'm going to be applying for this right after we get off this call. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, fortunately, we have great landlords with University of Chicago. So they've been very helpful. They gave me a little bit of assistance uh, talking about the whole rent, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? A rent... Uh, I can't even think what they call it. Anyway, statement, yes. Um, so yeah, so luckily I have good landlords and they understand that it's kind of hard to, you know, make money when you're closed. Yeah, that's a tough thing to do. But I have a lot of friends who don't have UFC as landlords and they still got to pay. First of the month, their rent is due. And you yeah. say, I haven't been open for 30 days. I haven't made one dime. And now I got to pay four or $5,000 and they still got to pay. So I, I do feel lucky that UFC is... Uh, they're they're very flexible. They with me. They've been and not just me. I think everybody. They they understand and they have the capacity to be able to you know do what they can do. So it's great. We've seen how the city and the state have handled COVID nineteen um, in relation to small businesses and just general trying to make make it easier to get along and to go to to live as best as you can in this situation. And and it doesn't look like the federales have put much effort into doing that for the citizens. What's your perspective about how the federal government has handled this whole thing from a business perspective and just from your perspective? Well, you have two things. You have, you have leadership, you have a president who you can't trust. Um, he, from day one, he's not told the truth about anything. So now you get to a point, you know, you got friends who they always lying about something. <laughs> Truth, you like I don't, I don't, I don't believe this person because they've built their, their their whole their whole being is built on on being dishonest. So yeah. even if they do have the best of intentions, I'm not saying they do. If they do, you're skeptical because the history of it, you know, and constantly putting out false information is just not helpful. Um, and I will say that you know I will say that at least this time there was thoughtfulness around helping small business as opposed to 2008. You know, we had the financial uh, collapse, which was a mortgage uh, uh, cost, you know, collapse. It was to help these big businesses. At least there was conversation this time around helping small businesses. 
Do you think that there will be any shows at all this summer or fall, like at music venues or any of this stuff? You know, when Pritzker said, and that was like the nail in the coffin when he said, you know, I wouldn't, if, if some, I forgot the exact term he used, but if I was having a festival, I'd think about canceling. I mean, when the governor says that, and again, you know, I'm not blaming him, you know, but he's saying that with, with information that he knows, um, maybe he knows more than we do. Hopefully he's telling us and, you know, uh, he's being transparent, mm -hmm. but right now we just don't know. Right. So let's say this curve flattens and by June 1st, we can open back up. And then I was just reading this thing right now. Um, uh, they have a, a plan to reopen in, in Nashville that's done in phases. So there's like, so there's four phases, right? There's the first phase where maybe it's just retails open up, you know, the second phase, maybe restaurants open up at half capacity, right? Then the mm -hmm. second phase, 14 day phase, restaurants open with three quarters of capacity, you know, anyway, you're looking at July, you know, August. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if there is no light switch, as they say, you know, you're going to come back, you know, little by little by little by little. I just don't see how everything will be great by July. It just, it just the, 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 the timing doesn't work. I don't yeah. see how it will be great by August. Now, I don't mean great where people are still sick. I mean great in a way where it used to be back in the day when no one's worrying about getting sick. So just my, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a personal phone, a phone number for Dr. Fauci. Or <laughs> Not yet, you don't. But, uh, but my sense is that at least the summer is, is, is probably going to be a wash. At least the summer. Klonsky brothers chatted with Chesa Badan, the district attorney of San Francisco, about jails during the pandemic. With jails such as Ohio's Marion Correctional and Cook County's own facility becoming pandemic hotspots, what can be done to safeguard prisoners? Find out on Hitting Left. It airs every Friday at 11 a.m. When you I, when you were running for district attorney, I bet you never anticipated anything like uh, the challenges that you're facing now. No way to predict uh, or anticipate uh, this kind of a pandemic and the effect it has on every aspect of life, especially uh, for me, professionally, criminal justice. You know, we're, 
we're in a space right now where uh, everything that we kind of took for granted as the, the cornerstones of what we do in terms of jury trials and preliminary hearings and, you know, in-person uh, arraignments in criminal court, all that stuff has been turned on its head and we're being forced to uh, make really difficult decisions in a whole new context. And how are you holding up under this stress? You know, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm really lucky to have a great team. I'm really lucky to have the support of my wife and, and family in this period. Um, and in, in some ways, uh, these sorts of crises, uh, you know, really make us all appreciate the, the luxuries and the privileges that we do have uh, much more acutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that we, obviously we've been talking about this on our kind of on a weekly basis now, uh, but one of the things we've talked about is the fact that it's, in a way, it's laid bare all of those kind of contradictions and all of the problems that existed uh, in, uh, in, in society at large before, the, before the, the, the coronavirus hit. Do you think that's, I mean, I'm sure you think that you know that's true, but, but could you talk about that a little bit? Because really the very issues that, that you ran on have been kind of even intensified now that you're in office. No, that's right. Um, you know, we, we ran a campaign based on ending mass incarceration, uh, based on an understanding and a clear, consistent uh, articulation of the ways in which mass incarceration actually undermine public safety rather than enhance it. And this crisis, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, has made even more clear and even more um, kind of current and present the ways in which mass incarceration undermines public safety. Look, right now, the single biggest threat to public safety is the coronavirus. And jails and prisons have the potential, as we've seen in Chicago with Cook County Jail, uh, which was recently identified as the single largest vector for the spread of coronavirus anywhere in the country. Um, jails and prisons have the conditions that are absolutely perfect for forming an epidemic within the pandemic. And so it's incumbent on all uh, district attorneys, on all folks committed to public safety, to find ways to safely reduce the number of people who are incarcerated. We need to do it not only for those people who are themselves incarcerated, but also for their families, and also for every single person that works in jails and prisons across the country who are at risk of being exposed to the virus and bringing it home to their families and their communities. Um, coronavirus is a very serious threat to public safety for all of us, but more than anyone else for the unhoused, the marginalized, and the incarcerated. And uh, for you, uh, this is a, a personal uh, issue as well. I mean, you, your dad, a friend of ours, uh, 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 David uh, Gilbert, is in prison now. He just turned 75 years old, I believe. That's right. Uh, and uh, what are the, uh, how, first of all, how is he doing? And secondly, what are the conditions like over there in uh, when, he's in when, right? He was in Wendy. He got moved uh, oh. back in December from Wendy to Shawangunk Correctional Facility. Um, Where's that, in upstate New York? It's upstate New York, although it's closer to New York City than Wendy was. It's a couple hours north of the city, um, right. not far what from are, the Hudson. What are the conditions like uh, for him over there? And uh, what are the prospects for possible release? Yeah, I mean, let me just say, the United States has over 2 million people behind bars. My dad is one of those 2 million, 2.2 million people. And so for me, you know, as district attorney, I've got a job to do professionally. 
But for me as a son with an incarcerated father, I am feeling the anxiety and the fear um, and, and, the, and the stress that every single family of every single incarcerated person in this country is feeling right now. Uh, we know firsthand that prison and jail make social distancing, good hygiene, and access to emergency medical care basically impossible. And we know that if and when the coronavirus hits the jails and prisons that our loved ones are incarcerated in, there will be very, very little that we can do or that they can do to keep themselves safe. Every single time my father comes to the phone to give me or my mother a call, he's literally taking his life in his own hands. He's 75 years old. He's got serious underlying medical conditions. Um, and while he's lucky in that he lives in a prison that has single cell bunks uh, or, or, or single bunk cells, I should say, he does not share his cell with another person. He's not in a dorm or a, or a um, you know, the way that many California prisons are massively overcrowded. And yet, he is within six feet of neighbors on either side. His, uh, all, all of their toilets are right up against a common corridor uh, with, with no solid walls separating them. Uh, when they go eat in the mess hall, they have to uh, eat meals prepared by other inmates. They have to sit next to other inmates. Uh, there's no meaningful way for them to keep themselves safe. And when my father was first transferred to Shuangunk uh, back in December, I believe, there wasn't even a single doctor that worked on staff at that prison. Now there is, but the reality is um, there's no ability for the prison to provide the kind of medical care that's necessary if and when the virus starts spreading quickly through the population. Already at least one guard tested positive in his prison. Uh, we're hearing from other inmates in the prison, though not confirmed by the prison authorities, that several inmates have uh, been evacuated from the prison with symptoms consistent with the coronavirus. Um, when they when they when they evacuate them, uh, where do they where do they go? Well, initially they were taking them to local hospitals, but uh, I've been told again, not confirmed, but I've been told that local hospitals are now refusing to accept transfers from prisons, prioritizing instead uh, people who are not incarcerated, and that. As a result, they've retrofitted the gymnasium within the prison as a uh, quarantine facility for up to 50 uh, inmates who start showing symptoms. Uh, you know, we see what's happening in New York uh, with Rikers Island. Um, you know, many people dying, some of them they're just on technical violations. We see that looks like a mass grave is being dug uh, by authorities on Hart Island in New York. These are really disconcerting uh, developments. A friend of mine is a doctor on Rikers Island, um, and she has an op-ed in the Washington Post today, which you know, I think is, is really spot on. You know, when people die, especially in pretrial uh, detention, you know, while they're awaiting uh, you know, a due process, um, when they die because of preventable diseases, um, that's, that's not a, a system that we can call just. Uh, yeah, no. how, ahead, how widespread is this situation? Uh, of medical care and uh, 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 around the country and other in other prisons. You talked about New York. You know the situation in California fairly well, but is this common in 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 prison situations around the U.S.? Every single jail and every single prison in the United States is dealing with the the potential for widespread death. Absolutely, it's an issue at federal prisons. It's an issue in every state. I'm in contact with my counterparts. Uh, across the country. Uh, jails, even more than prisons in some ways, are at risk because of the high volume of what we'll call churn. 
uh, under normal circumstances in San Francisco County Jail, for example, uh, an average of about 45 people a day are booked into the jail. It's a revolving door. New people get arrested, other people get released. Um, and that high volume of turnover means there's a real risk for people to bring the disease into the jail. And those people are then leaving and entering into the general population. Uh, and, and because one of the questions that people ask is why should I, I mean, aside from the, mor <laughs> the moral obligation of taking care of people even when they're in prison, uh, what is the threat to the, to the community outside of, of prison? And it sounds like what, what you're describing is that we're turning out people who are very likely infected out into the general population. Yeah, that's, that's one part of it. But the thing to remember, some people then say, well, we should just keep everybody who's in jail in jail, and we should not let them out until this crisis passes. That's what some people say. Um, the problem with that approach, uh, other than the, the constitutional challenges it presents, um, is that, first of all, you know, again, people do have a legal right to be released in many situations. They've served their sentence. Um, they've... Um, uh, they've been found not guilty. Um, a judge orders that consistent with the, the Constitution, uh, they're entitled to be released, et cetera. Uh, but the other problem is that in a place like San Francisco, we've got the 45 inmates, um, the people coming in and out on average a day. But we've got more than 200 staff members, sworn sheriff's deputies and civilian public health workers and social workers and, and other staff that help run the jails every day. So even if you freeze the jail population and don't let anybody out, you've still got about five times as many individuals coming in and out for their daily work who are all also getting exposed. And the more people you have in the jail, the more you let the, uh, the, 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 the population grow during this period, um, the more risk all of those people who work in the jail are taking for themselves and the families they go home to at night. <laughs> Oh, hey man, you have another heart attack? Oh, Jess, oh, you gotta get me off the streets. No, oh, somebody finally cashed that check? Jess, you gotta believe me, it's much too hot out here. It's like 65 degrees, Kyle. Jess, come on. <sighs> okay, okay, but if oh, this is another attempt to sort you. my underwear, I'm kicking your ass out into a fire barrel. Yes, I have the seed of our future in my hand. All right, what, what is the plot? Yes, stop flopping around. This is serious. This is crazy serious. I have in my pocket right here enough to open a diaper dispensary. Oh, you got it? I did it. Our own diaper dispensary, Jess. It's the biggest grab since the alligator in Humble Park last summer. How the hell are you going to afford that? How the hell did you Where get did in he? here, John? What, what are you talking about? You guys ran into the radio station, and you're sitting on my lap. Oh. So I am. Can you get up? No. No. So, uh, but what do you mean afford that? It's like 50 grand for a growing license. Non-refundable. Not true, Johnny boy. I got the crafts license. Uh... I have to say, Kyle seems surprisingly up on the new law here. Oh, what are you doing here? You ran into the radio station, Jess, and, and Kyle's doing something really disgusting with my shoes. Those aren't shoes. Those are Crocs. Kyle, my wife nope. gave these to me. I got one on you, Johnny. The craft license is my ticket right out of the basement. The craft license is 5000 and it's meant Underprivileged for... Underprivileged folk like myself. Yes, but... Uh, I'm... Wait, hold, hold on a sec. You don't think I'm underprivileged? Uh, it's, <laughs> like, basically the name of his neighborhood? 
No, Hold that's on a not. Sec. Are you racist to Undertown, John Boy? Wow, that is not yeah, a this... good look. Oh, John, no, that's John, not. Johnny Boy, I am so deeply wounded by your statements. Oh, how does it feel to be canceled? Wait, that's not. <laughs> oh, oh, Listen, as <laughs> Kyle's oh, emotional support animal and with his power said. of attorney, oh, I what the ship? This is clearly oh, harassment, geez. and as my client, okay, just cut the cut the crap. Here's twenty bucks. Thank you. Holy shit. I still have no idea why you guys burst in here. And why the hell are you still on John's lap? It's kind of plushy. Like, I'm really cozy here. <sighs> Fine. The truth is, Kyle actually had a great idea. Thank you. I know I did. Yes. And Thank you. in Kyle's pocket, he has our ticket to financial freedom. I do. Now behold. Uh, uh, that looks like a cotton diaper. What else would it be? Uh, what the hell, Kyle? I gave you money to go out and buy, like, seeds or plants or cuttings. Jess, a diaper dispensary doesn't use seeds. Kyle, what the heck do you think a dispensary sells? Uh, it's a diaper dispensary, John. A diaper dispensary. I got this great place on 55th. I got the license and everything. It's going to be great. <sighs> Kyle, what, what Jess, the... Jess, remember Radio Manners. Come I on. I don't care. Where did the money go? Swaddling tape and these fancy ads. Come experience swaddling like never before. <sighs> I'm I'm completely at sea, Kyle. That's new even for you this. You guys don't segment. get it. Jess is an expert swaddler. She can ramp a man like Kyle. I told you this probably violates my plea yes, deal. The alderman has been ringing my drop phone off the hook. I tell you, this is our ticket to the big time. The alderman. I might have a relationship with him or her, depending. Uh. As heard in Size Matters 81. But I'm telling you, people will pay to be swaddled, wrapped in a soothing cloth, and told everything's gonna be okay. Uh. You just wait. Welcome to the South Shore Green Diaper Spensary. Can I help um, you? Um, um, is the swaddler available? She sure is. There, there. Isn't that comfortable? It's like being held by mommy. Ugh. Kyle, I... We've already made 1,500 simoleons today, Jess. Oh, yeah? 1,500s. And really? we're booked into next year. Yeah, excuse me, swaddler. I'm chafing. Christ. Who knew everyone was so competitive about whose baby? Excuse me, I'm really oh, chafing. Oh, coming. I'll be right there with some soothing talc. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump urges protests from far-right groups against Democratic governors, governors push back against Trump's claims on testing, Barr threatens to sue states, McConnell wants them to declare bankruptcy, and Trump finally does have America first. More have died from COVID-19 here than anywhere else in the world. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1184, April 17th. Giving up any semblance of national leadership during the pandemic, Trump encouraged protests in Minnesota, Virginia, and Michigan against Democratic governors who were struggling to contain the spread of COVID-19. Moments after a Fox News segment on nascent protests aired, Trump sent a series of tweets calling on people to liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia, and save your great Second Amendment. It is under siege. Demonstrations against the restrictions broke out in several states. These actions appear to be funded by far-right billionaires. Large crowds showed up in Michigan's capital of Lansing for what organizers called 
Operation Gridlock in protest of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's shelter-in-place order. Some demonstrators waving Trump campaign flags flooded the streets of Lansing chanting, Lock her up. One of the hosts of that protest is the Michigan Freedom Fund, a group tied to Trump's own education secretary, Betsy DeVos. Trump's aides warned against him cutting funding to the World Health Organization, saying it would threaten U.S. lives. The memo also warned it would cede control to China. The WHO responded to Trump's claims that the group was, quote, severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the virus by noting that, quote, WHO alerted the world on January the 5th. Systems around the world, including the United States, began to activate their incident management systems on January the 6th. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo hired consultants McKinsey and Company and charged them with developing what he described in private as a Trump-proof economic plan to reopen the state. Trump predictably attacked Cuomo, saying, quote, we built you thousands of hospital beds that you didn't need or use, gave large numbers of ventilators that you should have had, and helped you with testing that you should be doing. He then complained that Cuomo should thank him. An exasperated Cuomo responded in real time, quote, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, send a bouquet of flowers? The governors of Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, and Kentucky are to coordinate on reopening the Midwest regional economy. This third group, joining others from the Northeast and the West Coast, is a tacit admission the federal government has failed to handle the pandemic. And Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner defied federal social distancing guidelines and traveled to New Jersey with their children to celebrate the first night of Passover. They defied a DC stay-at-home order to travel to the Trump Golf Club in New Jersey. Day 1185, April 18th. In response to questions from reporters, Trump called the protesters very responsible people in a White House briefing. Advisor Stephen Moore bizarrely compared protesters to a civil rights icon. Quote, I call these people modern-day Rosa Parkses. They are protesting against injustice and a loss of liberties. Moore's statement, which was made more jarring by pictures of the protesters waving Confederate flags, was not taken very seriously. He is a notorious quack economist who is famous for a track record of errant predictions. Roger Stone's request for a new trial was denied. Stone was convicted last year of witness tampering and lying to Congress. He is now to serve a 40-month prison sentence. In a related story, Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen is to be released from prison due to the coronavirus pandemic. He will serve the remainder of his three-year sentence under house arrest. Trump's campaign committee is refusing to pay 14 city governments a combined $1.82 million for public safety costs stemming from his campaign rallies. The campaign, which is sitting on an estimated $212 million, claims it's not responsible for reimbursing cities for police and public safety costs. Day 1186, April 19th. As Trump pushes for a reopening of the USA, largely motivated by election year concerns, governors and health officials are warning that testing remains unavailable. Calling the administration's plan delusional, governors begged this weekend for more swabs and reagent. An analysis of current testing shows the USA needs a half million tests per day to safely reopen. The Americas are currently testing below one-third of that number. And according to the State Department, Trump's new export restrictions have stranded face masks, test kits, and other medical equipment in warehouses across China. The new policies, which began on April 1st, have, quote, disrupted established supply chains for medical projects, just as those products were most needed for the global response. FEMA awarded a $55 million contract for N95 PPE to an apparently bankrupt company with no employees. The contract was given to Panthera Worldwide LLC, which has no history of manufacturing or procuring medical equipment. 
According to sworn statements in bankruptcy court, it has not had any employees since 2018. An oversight investigation revealed that the Trump administration has been paying as much as $5 per mask. They normally cost pennies. And Trump appointed campaign operative Michael Caputo as the head of communications at the Department of Health and Human Services. Caputo has no experience in health care, but recently published a book called Ukraine Hoax, claiming there was a conspiracy driving Trump's impeachment. Trump apparently believes the head of the Health and Human Services Department, Alex Azar, is behind leaks that blame Trump for his botched handling of the pandemic. Day 1187, April 20th. Attorney General William Barr said the Justice Department will consider taking legal action against governors who continue to impose strict social distancing rules. Barr claimed the orders are burdens on civil liberties and that his department would side against the states. It is unclear on what legal basis Barr would contest those orders. Public health laws give states and governors wide leeway. However, Barr's comments seem more calculated to prop up Trump, who has been harshly criticized for stoking the AstroTurf protests in states. The director of the CDC warned a second wave of the coronavirus is likely to occur this fall, and it will be worse. Robert Redfield said, quote, there's a possibility that the assault of the virus in our nation next winter will actually be even more difficult than the one we just had. We're going to have the flu epidemic and the coronavirus epidemic at the same time. Meanwhile, the FDA has just approved the first at-home coronavirus test. A nasal swab kit is expected to go on sale in most states this week. A bipartisan but Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee report agreed that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election. The report rejected claims that a deep state intelligence community was biased against Trump and that Kremlin assistance to his campaign was a hoax perpetrated by Democrats. The report found specific intelligence reporting to support the assessment that Vladimir Putin and the Russian government demonstrated a preference for candidate Trump and that Putin approved and directed aspects of the interference. The malaria drug touted by Trump flunked a clinical trial. In a study run by the VA, about 28% were given hydroxychloroquine, plus the usual care died, versus 11% of those getting routine care alone. 22% of those getting that drug plus erythromycin died as well. The National Institute of Health subsequently warned against the combination of hydroxychloroquine and erythromycin for the treatment of COVID-19 patients. Day 1188, April 21st. Trump claimed via late-night tweet that he would be suspending all immigration to the United States, claiming it would, quote, protect the nation from the invisible enemy and will protect the jobs of our great American citizens, has mooted the move would end legal immigration and seal the country off from the rest of the world. It is unclear if that move is actually legal. Trump's advisors have long pushed for an end to all immigration. Courts have rejected those efforts. For the first time ever, a key U.S. oil benchmark went negative. West Texas Intermediate settled at negative $37.63, meaning traders are paying for someone to accept a barrel of product. The bizarre situation is the result of a price war between OPEC and Russia and a lack of storage space here in the USA, along with decreased consumption. The result is deflation, which has not occurred in the United States in generations. Some states moved to reopen on Tuesday, drawing alarm from big city mayors. South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia all allowed some businesses to reopen. Georgia went farther than most in opening gyms, movie theaters, tattoo parlors, and beaches. This caused alarm in Atlanta, where there's been a 38% spike in coronavirus cases in just last week. Mayor Kesha Lance Bottom publicly urged residents in her city to ignore the governor's orders. 
Milwaukee health officials say at least seven people contracted the coronavirus from participating in Election Day on April 7th. The infected included poll workers and people casting ballots. Doctors cautioned that more cases were likely to emerge. Polling took place in Wisconsin against a governor's order after that state's Republican-controlled legislature refused to postpone the election or expand voting by mail. Chinese intelligence operatives apparently ran a massive disinformation campaign on social media that claimed Trump was planning to lock down the entire country in order to prevent looting and rioting. The messages, circulated widely by text and Facebook, were spread so effectively that the National Security Council had to make a public announcement to clarify that this was fake. China also has been running an extensive propaganda campaign at home to stoke hatred toward foreigners. Chinese news outlets used words like purgatory and apocalypse to describe scenes in Italy and Spain that have suppressed all similar topics from Wuhan. Citizen bloggers have been harshly attacked on social media. Some have been arrested. Trump's campaign is paying Eric Trump's wife and Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend $180,000 a year each. The Trump Organization asked for rent relief from the Trump administration on the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. because of the pandemic. The hotel is in a federally owned building. Day 1189, April 22nd. Trump announced a 60-day pause in the issuance of green cards, calling it a temporary suspension of immigration into the United States, which it is not. His order did not touch guest worker programs that bring farm laborers, high-tech employees, and others into the USA using special visas. The Senate passed a $484 billion relief package to replenish a bankrupt loan program for small businesses and provide additional funds for hospitals and for testing. The program also had $75 billion for hospitals and $25 billion for coronavirus testing in a nod to the reality on the ground that supplies and tests have been scant. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell then tried to suggest that would be it, telling a conservative talk radio host that states should consider declaring bankruptcy. Quote, I'm hitting the pause button on further aid to states, citing his concern over the impact on the federal debt. States do not actually have the ability to declare bankruptcy. Also, interest rates right now are such that investors are actually paying the United States to invest their money, making it an ideal time for the federal government to spend money. Both New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker rebuked McConnell, with Cuomo calling his comments one of the saddest, really dumb comments of all time. And McConnell's comments were in fact brushed off on both sides of the aisle. Nancy Pelosi said she would present a major package of aid for state and local governments within the next week. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said, quote, this is a war and we need to win this war and we need to spend what it takes to win the war. Trump also made a rare criticism of a political ally, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. Kemp has moved to reopen many businesses in his state. Trump bluntly called the move too soon. Atlanta saw a 38% jump in virus cases this week. Similar criticism was made of Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman after she called for casinos to reopen. One local official called her comments an embarrassment. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar's response to the pandemic is now under the microscope as data emerged showing the virus hit American shores far earlier than reported. At least one death occurred three weeks before the pandemic was thought to be present in the United States. Azar reportedly waited for weeks to brief Trump on the threat and oversold his agency's progress. He also tapped a former dog breeder to lead the agency's day-to-day -day response. That aide, Brian Harrison, had joined the department after running a dog breeding business for six years. He had minimal healthcare experience. Day 1190, April 23rd. Jobless figures soared again, adding nearly 5 million people to the payroll. 
Analysts say this is actually an undercount. In just one month, more than 26 million people in the United States have lost their job and filed for unemployment. The doctor who led the federal agency involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine said he was removed from his post after questioning the hydroxychloroquine treatment pushed by Trump. Dr. Rick Bright was abruptly dismissed this week. He had questioned the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and his thoughts were borne out this week by a trial that showed it had no effect, in fact, possibly harming patients. Trump owns a stake in a company that makes that drug. Bright has filed as a whistleblower. Betsy DeVos told colleges that undocumented students would be blocked from receiving emergency federal aid assistance. Congress had allocated $6 billion in its economic rescue package to colleges to grant students so they could cover expenses related to the coronavirus pandemic, such as food and books. It was also intended to cover the so-called DREAMers. DeVos, however, mandated that the money be only given to U.S. citizens and some legal permanent residents. Iran successfully launched a military satellite leading Trump to declare he had instructed the Navy to sink any Iranian fast boats that harass our ships at sea. Trump's words took the Pentagon by surprise. Under the Navy's rules of engagement, lethal force can only be used if American ships or personnel are at risk. Last week, the Pentagon accused Iran of sending 11 fast boats to conduct dangerous and harassing approaches to six American warships in the Persian Gulf. 58% of Americans now favor vote by mail for the November election because of the virus. 65% of Americans say Trump waited too long to address the pandemic. 60% of Americans oppose protest to reopen the country. 60% of Americans also think Trump is moving too soon to reopen the United States. And as mentioned, Trump finally has America first. More than 840,000 Americans have been diagnosed with COVID-19, and at least 46,784 have died from it. That is more than anywhere else in the world. That death toll is now approaching the total number of casualties America suffered during the Vietnam War. These are the Trump Diaries. Our own Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this encore selection from Thompson Springs. It was engineered by Ari Schellest.
By all means, go for it. Okay. Well, the first one, and one that I've been following a lot, is uh, sort of this idea. I mean, who hasn't? I'm me. Even even I am guilty of using the wrong there, 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 your, your in a sort of a text chain when you're not really paying attention. Um, and Postgrammar wants to sort of help us with this because it's such a pervasive issue mm-hmm. with everybody. Um, but in addition to that, they identified a problem that's not just inherent in the misspeaking or misthinking about a word. They, they point to this as an example of where uh, – of sort of an egoism. Now, the way that we speak is inherently sort of egoistic. Um, when you're talking about somebody outside of you, whether you're talking to that person or whether that person has no idea that you're talking to them or about them or whatever, it, it, it's, it's sort of – it shouldn't matter – to, to a linguist because the linguist only cares about what they are saying at any given moment and that they, that they are saying it into the public void where anybody can see it or not see it or whatever, right? Whether or not I'm talking to the listener or about the listener on the show doesn't really matter, sort of like that. So instead of using a possessive there and a possessive your, instead of talking about, you know, their cat or your cat, depending on who I'm talking to or who I'm talking about, they want to uh, – post-grammarists, they want to get rid of that altogether. They just want to create one word, one singular possessive, no matter who or what you're talking about. And that – the one that they all sort of came to agree on yes. is the word doink. <laughs> Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.